I think it was just the whole um, the time that I did martial arts. You know, the time when I did MMA was it was kind of just like that because when you figure there was no money or sponsors in it, and it was uh, when I started, it was illegal in majority of the United States. Uh, you know, it's the reason for getting into the sport wasn't to be rich and famous. So the reason why we did in our time was because we were, we were trying to test ourselves and fight with honor. So I think um, having that type of mindset, I think only those people would join. I think majority of the fighters fighting today wouldn't fight back in the day before when it was not, there was no money, there was no fame and you're just fighting for honor, you know? So I think I got that mindset uh, just from my upbringing and I, I, I think I did, you know, when I started uh, training for martial arts to try to find the best martial arts for the street because I was training for the street. And then I, and then I came across Jiu-Jitsu. And I really looked up to the Gracies. So, you know, guys like Henzo, Hickson, Hoyler, Hoyce. You know, they had that mindset. You know, they were willing to die for the, the family's honor. So I was brought up thinking like that. I was brought up thinking that you're fighting for honor. You're fighting for your honor. And death is nothing compared to, you know, destroying your honor. Have you seen um, uh, Henzo Gracie Legacy, the documentary? Yes, I've seen that. Yeah, I saw that recently. And yeah, him and him and Hickson just seem to be like true samurais in that sense. Um, oh yes, without a doubt. And in fact, all the Gracies seem to have that. I mean, you get it so often that you know the son of a great man is really great, but they just seem to have been so consistently, you know, just psychopathic warriors through almost a hundred years. Of, yeah, that's, that's a good explanation. <laughs> like, like when Henzo didn't tap to um, Sakuraba, and he. Um, was his shoulder or his army broke? And yeah, it was just, I think that it was a joint in his elbow. Mm. And how he um, he refused to let Sakuraba see him uh, in pain, so he forced himself to just keep laughing, even when Sakuraba went backstage uh, to congratulate him after the fight. I just thought that was intense. Yeah, Henzo. I think uh, Hoyce and Henzo were the two ones. You know, Hickson, of course, was a top cream of the crop. But he didn't really get a chance to really show himself in the modern day world because it was Hoist that came in and Hickson, I guess, I think outpriced himself a lot of times. So Do you think Hickson was do you think Hickson was that bridge between the two generations as far as um, taking your career more seriously in terms of being an athlete, not just in being a warrior? I don't think he was a bridge. I think he had his own standards. He priced himself for what he was thought he was worth. And he just um, priced it to a point where I think uh, for him, he had nothing to prove to him or anyone else. And if they wanted him, you paid him money. Mm. So that was his uh, whole thing. Yeah. You know, as us as, a, you know, as, as students of jiu-jitsu and, you know, even fans that, that love to see, you know, someone like Hickson fight. It was it was really a you know a downer to think like oh damn we're not going to see Hickson fight. 
It was really a bummer, you know, because I wanted to see him. I wanted to see him display his, you know, his talents and his his incredible uh, ground technique. But we didn't get that because he was off-pricing it, yeah. It reminds me of um, how Khabib recently left the um, the UFC. He just, he was sort of above the hype and the clout around himself and he didn't really, you know, he took his own personal journey much more seriously than... Um, what other people wanted from him. Do you think it's a fair question to ask how fighters from your generation would have gone in the modern era? Like how well do you think Hickson would have gone um, against someone like Francis Ngannou today? I don't think the fighters of my day would do well with the fighters of this day because the fighters this day is well more well-rounded. I mean, you know, Hickson, he was, his ground was incredible. I mean, not sure if there's anyone that can mix with Hickson on the ground even today, but his standing and his wrestling was not top level. Like a lot of the guys today, he I don't think he'd be able to take them down. The striking now is so dangerous that before they get, he gets them to the ground, I think he'd be in more danger. So, you know, back in the day, you know, in my day when we fought someone, they were either a kickboxer that had a little bit of ground or they had a jiu-jitsu guy that had a little bit of standing or a wrestler that didn't know, didn't have any ground or standing, but he was a good wrestler. You know, so there was a lot of holes and you know, my, today it's a, to, today all the young fighters coming up to into MMA is, has their work cut out for them and you got pro boxers with black belt jiu-jitsu. You got black belt jiu-jitsu guys with golden gloves boxing experience. So, yeah, the level is just, you know, just so much higher right now. What made Hickson's jiu-jitsu so special, do you think? I don't know, man. I think he's, uh, just, he's just a genius on the ground. Because it was never showy. It was always – it reminds me of um, Hodger Gracie's game, just very sort of um, – very quiet, methodical. Real, real quiet and real effective, you know. And the thing with Hickson was the trick with him was that he could he could think like five moves ahead. You know, like if you're, you're playing chess, uh, average a beginner chess player will move one move at a time, or a good player will probably be able to go two or three at a time, but Hickson will go five at a time. So you he misses that one, he misses that one, the setup and the setup, boom, the fit one is the one he was looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a level above most people. I mean, even today with me, with all my grappling experience, three is even a borderline for me, man. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. three moves ahead is a borderline. For three you. moves ahead, yeah, mm-hmm. it's already hard. I mean, one or two, one, two, two moves ahead, yeah, but three moves, even that's hard. Think of going four or five is like beyond my level. And I'm only, I mean, I'm only a blue belt, but it's, it's hard to convey to people just how sort of mentally exhausting jiu-jitsu is, just having to think that quickly on your toes and combined with being you know, suffocated by someone else. Yeah, it is. It is a, it's a chess game. Mm. Um, with that mentality um, of being ready to die, is that something, I mean, do you think you were any less scared of the average fighter or just willing, less willing to give in to that fear? Like, were you ter- just as terrified as anyone else? Um, I think, I think the, the fighters today don't feel as much fear because it's so regulated. 
and they're, they're going into something that they understand. There's a sport, you know, there's rules. You can't kick soccer ball kicks. You can't do that. You know, for our deal, it was a little different because it wasn't understood. It was considered human cockfighting. You know, people thought it was crazy, you know, so the anxiety that you, you feel going into a fight back in my day was really high, you know, because it was a, it was a barbaric, it was considered a barbaric thing. So we're doing something that was pretty barbaric, you know, so the anxiety was really high. Yeah. So I think um, I felt fear every time I felt nervousness and fear every time, but um, I don't know. That's something that sometimes a man thrives on. I mean, I, I hated that feeling, but I also did love the feeling. Did you try to kill that anxiety? Obviously, with you, you train a lot to, um, you know, prepare yourself as well as you could. But did you also train so hard to exhaust yourself so you could sort of just on a physiological level get rid of that anxiety and you know get that endorphin release? You'd wake up in the morning shitting yourself, knowing that you've got to fight in two weeks, and you're like, I'm only going to feel okay about this if I'm exhausted at the end of the day. Well. The, you know, the, the anxiety is uncertainty. The anxiety is a uh, fear of uh, the unknown of what's going to happen in the fight. So, you know, I felt that the more I trained, the harder I trained, the less chances of me dying, the less anxiety. So what I always used to do is, you know, I always used to train as hard as I could. Never, you know, never skip the day. I mean, if I skipped the day, I felt like shit and I would go harder the next day. So that way, I, I, as long as I felt going into the fight that I trained as hard as I could and was as prepared as Encinoy will ever be today, the anxiety that I felt was bearable anxiety. The anxiety that I felt was, you know, like fear and anxiety. You, everyone feels it. it. It's a matter of whether you're going to let it take over or you're going to be able to work with it and control it. You know, if you can control it, it can become your biggest foe, your biggest, biggest uh, you know, adversary, you know. I mean, not adversary, it can be your biggest help because it can actually get you more adrenaline flowing. And if you let it take over, then you'll freeze up, you'll cover up, you'll get scared, you know. So fear is something everyone feels. And I think if you can control it, it'll become a great help for you. Would you get an adrenaline dump in most of your fights at the start or...? You just get used to that by the end. No, my, my fights were during their adrenaline dump, before their <laughs> adrenaline dump. <laughs> my fights was pure adrenaline. Mm. The dump happened when I went back in the locker room. Mm. I don't think I did. I, you know, all my fights are pretty fast, you know. Mm. Yeah, you come out absolutely swinging for the for the bleachers. It's pretty, um, yeah. Because, I, I mean, I first, I first heard you on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and then, I just went down a rabbit hole of looking at some of your past fights and, um, yeah, pretty terrifying guy back in the day. And now, I'm sure. You know, if you really understand what I was thinking in there, I was thinking, this isn't a sport. This is a, who's going to hurt the other person first? You know, who's going to kill? He's going to kill me first. I'm going to kill him. So it was about getting in there and, killing him so he don't kill me you know that that was my whole thing i, I mean he was training three months to hurt me mm. and hurt me to a point where i wouldn't be able to fight so by all means i didn't want to be the one on the ground so i wanted to hurt him before he hurt me so and that's where the aggression came i think it was from that anxiety 
of uh, a fear of, you know, possibly being hurt or killed. It's the one sport, I think, where the aim of the game isn't to just do one thing better than the other person, but it's to actually incapacitate the person from being able to do that. You're trying That's to... why it's hard to say, call this a sport, you know. <laughs> Sports are supposed to be something you run a ball across a line or you put a ball into a hoop, you know. <laughs> but mm. to to punch your opponent so he's rendered unconscious, to grab his arm and break his limb so you possibly rip his ligaments or break his bone, you know. Mm. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a sport, you know. So it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of neat how they've actually made it become a sport you know by taking out some rules you know still the, the objective is the same so i still have that argument of how this can be a sport you know it should be a martial art you know but in order to for the sport to grow as it did i think they had to make it a sport and make it you know make more rules and weight limits you know mm. so i understand i've always thought it's what's so fascinating about mixed martial arts or combat sports in general um is that it's not quite war and it's not quite sport. It kind of occupies this space in between and that it gives it almost like this cinematic quality. It's like you're watching a live movie take place. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of true. When you say you're ready to die, just to yourself, what's the process you go through in reaching that mindset? I mean, do you think long and hard about why you're willing to die or is it more of a... Uh, natural instinct, something which is just particular to your personality. Well, well, I I saw the fight as pushing yourself with the with with um, how is that your your honor? You know, you, you can't break your honor, you can't break your uh, your will as a man. And I felt that if uh, you know, I'm going to give hundred percent in the fights because if I, I, I the way I felt was you can't control wins and losses, but you can't control if you give 100%. And 100% would mean being rendered unconscious or being killed or being to a point where you can't move. You know, if he breaks one arm, I'm still going to fight. I got another arm. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, to give 100% meant to, to fight to the death. And to not fight to the death, to tap out and to give up in between the fight, I felt it was breaking the the agreement, breaking, you know, breaking your honor as a, a promise to yourself about giving a hundred percent. And I believe that I would rather, you know, they have this saying, you know, you know, I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way. You feel like if you give in and you, you, because of fear or because you don't want to, your arm broken and you tap, I feel like you've, you've uh, broken your word with yourself. And as a man, you know, there are some things that you do or you break that will haunt you forever. And whatever happens in a fight, my arm breaks, the arm will heal. You know, I mean, all the other injuries besides death, you could, you get in the ring, you don't heal. But your honor, breaking your honor, breaking your, your word to yourself and losing respect for yourself is something that you would never ever get back did you feel dissatisfied then when you had easy victories did you feel like you had to actually um, 
I mean, you wouldn't feel satisfied with your performance unless you'd been pushed to the point of um, near death. No, uh, easy victories were just lucky fights, I felt. I picked all my fights because I thought these people would be people who would break me. And the objective wasn't to be broken, but the objective was to face that ferocity. To come as you know, close I as saw, possible. Yeah, I saw Mark Kerr like, turn Ugo Dorte into a coward. And I wanted to feel that. I saw Ugo, uh, Igor Vopachanchin knock out Francisco Bueno out cold and, you know, on the first punch and on the way down hits him again. When I saw that power in his punches and I, for some reason, I, I felt I had to feel that. And I wanted to see if I can overcome that type of anxiety and that type of challenge as a man. So when I went and fought Igor, I took, I wanted to fought him toe to toe. Was that, was that your hardest fight, Igor of Ascension? Um, I had, you know, the, I had three hardest fights. Well, I, I had, well, Frank Sharmok, if anything, was the hardest battle that I had. Uh, Mark Kerr was the hardest in the sense that he was good enough to know what I was doing, not good enough to pass my guard and, you know, finish me, but he was good enough and fucking strong as hell, strong enough to negate anything I did. And that was a very, very frustrating fight. So that was a tough fight. Uh, the fight with, uh, you know, Norgera technically was the toughest fight mm. because I couldn't, I couldn't get an offense off. Was he, was Norgera the only one who, I mean, have you, have you ever fought someone who was more technically sound than you on the ground? And was that the one, the, the one fight where that was the case? Yeah, I think just Norgera was the only one ever. Mm. Yeah, and he just, phew, he kept me on the, def, off the defense the whole time. I couldn't even create an offense. You're just a millisecond behind every transition. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, and the, as, as far as physically, Igor was the toughest. Hmm. That was a fight that I had the most damage. I had, a, I had a perforated eardrum. I had a broken finger and a broken jaw. And I had a swollen brain. And I had the liver. My liver count went, went nuts. Just from the hormone levels? Yeah, I think the, the doctor told me that on the facial trauma, the face has muscles. And he said that the muscles all work together. So when the muscles get traumatized, they start letting out toxins. And they all work together. So the whole body's letting out toxins and that affects your liver. So they, they, had, me, uh, they had me on a, an intensive care for two days because I had a 24-hour nurse watching me Jeez. because of the... Because of that, because my liver was, they was worried that my liver was going to just hit the wall. Jeez. Did so that, that was the hardest fight physically, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also to what you were saying before, probably one of your more impressive, more impressive performances, I think. Um, which martial art is your favorite, both to train and to fight? It's your jujitsu? Jujitsu. By far jujitsu, because it's the most effective. Mm. The most effective in a straight fight or in the cage or both. I just feel like if I, you had to choose a martial art to have it under your belt to to defend yourself in the street or the cage, jujitsu is the one you need. Hmm. And you could um, always, you know, on the, even on the street, man, it's not like you're gonna start up and start boxing. Hmm. You could play it cool till you get close and boom, grab them, take them down, and get your jujitsu. You know, so hmm. I think if anything, percentage wise. Most street fights go to the ground. 
fight in the library, you can't use kicks. You fight in a parking lot, car's going to be in the way. I think, if anything, in, in most situations, if you put a percentage on situations, I think jiu-jitsu would be the one that you probably could use the most. Mm. And I think in a straight fight as well, you wouldn't want to, I mean, obviously you'd want to win the fight, but winning the fight with striking, you're also running a high risk of you know, potentially killing the person, whereas jiu-jitsu is just much more about control. Um, you're going you're gonna to win the fight and you're not going to um, go to jail for it as well, I think. Um, the only downfall with jiu-jitsu on the street is it's such a um, – you're tying yourself up. If there's two people, it's, it's very dangerous. In what sense? Well, if, you, if, you're, if you're on the guy, you know, anyway, if you're controlling position, you're vulnerable from the back. If there's more than one person. Yeah. 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 It's That's the only as... thing that would be wor- I would be worried about jiu-jitsu is mm, – One-on-one it works, but not necessarily. One-on-one, yeah. But if it's like two guys on one, then mm. I'd probably rather not go to the ground. Yeah. Did your proficiency in jiu-jitsu make you uh, a more competent striker in the sense that you didn't worry about being taken down? Um, yeah, I think so. Because that's sort of how no, I see I, I don't think I've ever fought a fight thinking I don't want to be taken down. Mm. And because you always, you always sort of pulled guard or were content to um, sort of sit on your back and bait the your opponent in was sort of how I read your style, especially against someone like Randy Couture. I thought that was sort of how you baited him in. Um, but sorry, go on there. Yeah, so I never, yeah, I never really worried about being taken down. Oh, maybe I did. Maybe Royce Alger when I fought in UFC 13. Mm-hmm. But I got lucky on down because when I threw the feint, he bit on the feint and I was able to, you know, get on top of him. Of course, he, he his wrestling skills put me to the bottom. So mm-hmm. I eventually had to, you know, work from my back again. But I was very, you know, the armbar from the bottom was my, my favorite move in jiu-jitsu. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads on to the next question. So you were the first person to ever beat... Um, Randy Couture, and what was that like to face him? I mean, were you surprised you managed to get the armbar against him? Because surely given his pedigree as a wrestler, that wasn't the outcome you expected, or was it? No, um, I didn't expect that because when I fought, when I beat Royce Alger, Randy Couture won the heavyweight, the heavyweight tournament in that one. So I, I, I assumed, you know, Randy saw me beat Rice with the armbar. And I felt that he would, he would have trained that and uh, wasn't going to get caught in it. So I didn't expect to get it. I thought it was going to be a hard, hard drag, you know, war where we just slowly damage each other. So I was ready for like a long war. So, yeah, like, I, like when I got the arm and I felt his arm, you know, popping in my, in my growing area when I, when I was extending my hips. And I felt him tap my legs. I, I it was kind of surprised me. I was like, "Holy shit, Randy Couture is tapping." That was, was my whole like, "Whoa!" I just tapped Randy Couture. <laughs> it was pretty rowdy, pretty rowdy. Um, do you think that's a problem that a lot of wrestlers have today? Is because they're so confident in their ability to not be taken down that when it actually gets to the ground, their jujitsu game isn't uh, necessarily strong enough to defend. I mean, I, I thought that was the case with Gaethje versus Khabib. As soon as Khabib got, I mean, Gaethje was going into that fight saying, you know, I've got the highest 
um, takedown defense uh, in the in the lightweight division, I think, at the time. And as soon as it was on the ground and Khabib was passing his guard, I was just like, he, it looked literally like a blue belt versus a black belt with all respect to Gaethje, but that's, that's just how it looked, I think. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think the wrestlers are so good at staying on top that they're not that worried about getting to the ground. But maybe something like somebody, especially someone like Justin Gaethje, he's so his takedown percentage being taken down was so rare that I think he was got too comfortable with that. So knowing someone like Justin, you know, after what happened, you know, he's probably worked his ground a lot. So it'll be interesting to see if he, if they had a rematch or something, but that's probably not going to ever happen. But. Gaethje seems to um, personify that warrior ethos that we were sort of attributing to Hickson and Henzo. Um, he seems to sort of personify it the most in that division. I think he's um pretty admirable character the way he carries himself. Um, uh, do you watch a lot of jujitsu today? Uh, not that much. I'm actually, actually falling out of it. I, you know, even teaching it, I, I, I do teach jujitsu yet, but it's, it's more MMA. Like my seminars are mostly MMA seminars. I've done, I, I'm more accustomed to doing MMA than jujitsu right now. Mm. Uh, MMA, version of jiu-jitsu if that makes sense or like straight up mma like yeah with no gear yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah what do you think of um surely you've seen gordon ryan though what do i think of gordon ryan yeah what do you think of him and how, amazing how, yeah i think he's that i think he's changed the whole game man i, I think you know i mean i think I, I i don't is there anyone that can beat him I think there's a strong argument for him being one of the best athletes in the world. In like, if you use as your barometer the distance between first and second place, I don't think I, I think he's the best at what he does. And just says no. Yeah, and I heard I heard he's going into MMA, huh? Hopefully, yeah, I think so. I mean, twenty six, twenty seven is around the age when you do that, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, when it's sort of all the um martial arts start coming together but he's he's got Galvao at ADCC which will be huge um, and then I think if he wins that he'll probably go down as the best jiu-jitsu player ever and then go into MMA and see if he can do it but um, it's a pretty pretty exciting career he's like the Conor McGregor of uh, jiu-jitsu I think in terms of what he's done for the sport um, yeah uh, amazing and I love how he's um he's not even it's not like he's super quick or it's not like he's using his strength. Like he always looks like he's actually moving quite slow, but his technique is just so fluid and perfect that it's just, yeah, it's remarkable. Um, what is that going to do? Sorry. Do you fight like you're um, ready to die? Not just because... Um, you believe it's more honorable, but kind of to what we were saying before, it improves your performance. Um, maybe no, I don't think so. I, I don't think it has anything to do with my performance. I it think it's just the fact the fact that I'm just going to give everything I got. But it doesn't make you more. I mean, in the eagle fight, um, I mean that was very much the sense I got. Like the way you came out, just all guns blazing was just throwing 
caution to the wind, like you weren't protecting yourself at all. But I think that was the most successful part of your fight against Eagle was that first sort of minute to two minutes when he was sort of just stunned by you coming at him like that. So I think it sort of has its advantages, surely, having having that attitude. Yeah, I think, yeah, because I think with that type of mindset and that type of approach, when you, when you, when I go after an opponent, I think they've never, there's something that you can't really practice for. Mm. You know, when someone's coming and trying to really hurt you, you can't really train that. And, you know, Randy Tour even said something that, you know, they knew, he knew that, you know, I was aggressive. He knew I was going to come out after him. He said, but until you actually feel it, you can never really prepare for it. And I imagine it's, it's something you feel on such as like, looking at it on TV or even in the arena from um, from the seats, you can't actually quite see the details of um, that interaction between the two fighters. I mean, you can't see the aggression in the eye the same way that the opposing fighter can see the aggression in the eye. And so it's actually, you know, in that sort of much smaller um, vicinity, it's it's a lot more terrifying, I imagine. And you can't even convey that to people through TV. Or- yeah, it's like, it's like watching a fight on TV. And then actually being in an arena to hear everything and feel the energy. Mm. And then another level is being the opponent in the ring. Yeah, it's mm. a whole different thing. Who was the most honorable man you ever fought? The fighter you respected the most? I respected all my fighters. I respected Frank. I respected uh, Igor. He's hearing, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's not one that I respected more, but maybe one that I didn't respect. I didn't respect uh, Joe Estes. How come? Yeah, Joe Estes, because I when I fought him in the shooter ring, he beat me the first time, and the second time he tried to demand demand too much fight money that they almost didn't call him over until I had to tell Shuto that if they have to pay some of my fight money to him, get him here. And what, what made me really not respect him was that he talked such a big storm about, you know, his fight money and how, you know, he beat me before. So he's better than me. And then when I get the mound on him and I hit him a couple of times, he just started tapping out. I mean, you walk, talk to talk, you got to walk the walk, you know, and someone that doesn't walk the walk, you know, I have a hard time respecting, you know, at the time, I mean, right now, you know, I'm cool and everything. I would love to meet him one day, see him, talk to him. In fact, I want to try and I have a podcast too, so I want to try and bring him onto my podcast one day. That'd be cool to talk about it. What's your podcast called? Uh, it's a Yamato Damashi podcast. Just for the um, listeners, could you explain what uh, Yamato Damashi means? Yamato Damashi is the spirit of the samurai, which encompasses integrity, courage, compassion, and loyalty. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's the attributes of a, of a samurai. And, you know, I was named that in Japan because of the way I fought and the way I talked about in my, about myself or the fights in the interviews, they said, wow, this is like more, they're really samurai-ish. So they kind of named me Yamato Damashi. So we, you know, that was, that's kind of my nickname. So that must be a massive honor in Japan. Oh Yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I thought when I first was 
you know, you, you think of a samurai as someone who goes to battle and dies on his sword, you know, dies on his shield. You know, you, you, that's what you think of a samurai. And I didn't realize that it, it was such a deep word. It was such a beautiful word, you know, about honor and, you know, integrity. And I, I didn't know that. So when I was given the name, I was like, oh, that's cool, man. You know, that's cool, man. They, they call me a samurai. Yeah. And that was immature young me being one of being tough and thinking that, oh, being called a samurai is cool. And as I, you know, as I was fighting and they called me Amatamashi, the more I actually looked into the word, I realized that there's so much more to the word. And it was a word that, you know, they named me Yamadamashi because they said I I'm I'm representing Yamadamashi. I, I mean I felt like no, I'm not Yamadamashi. I'm I want Yamadamashi now. I realized the word is a lot bigger than me. And it's something that they can't say that I have, but it's something that I decided that I wanted to chase for the rest of my life. And till today I'm still chasing the life of, you know, I believe it's a way of life, the Yamadamashi way of life. So still chasing it today. Mm. honored to be named it so it's like the um you know the sort of young bull ego of a fighter actually has a lot more substance to it than you thought perhaps and um mm. and didn't the um doesn't um jujitsu have its origins in or at least partly in the hand-to-hand fighting techniques of the samurai yes i think long jujitsu is more combat Mm. Jiu-Jitsu actually started in Japan, yeah. With Maeda. Well, well, not with Maeda, but brought over by Maeda. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for me, it's kind of weird that it's, how can you learn an art from someone and then just train in your country so you call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Well, what, what, were, what were the main alterations that the Gracies made um, when Maeda taught it to them? In the early 20th century, I think they uh, they they refined the ground, and they made they made it more. You know, so so what the Gracies did with jujitsu is what all these new school guys are doing with jujitsu today. So, so you can always look at it in in, in three steps. It's like there's the original jujitsu straight out of Japan, and then there's its interaction with the Brazilian community in the early 20th century, and now it's in its next evolution in terms of people like Gordon Ryan, Craig Jones. Gavel. Yeah, so yeah. The, from Jiu-Jitsu from Japan got 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 modified by the Gracies, then got modified by more Jiu-Jitsu guys, and then now the whole you know you you go to a Koise Gracie seminar, he's not teaching you the Barambola and the, you know they don't really know those things. So it's a whole not it's a whole other thing. So I mean you know Gordon Ryan. You know, if he's, you know, I, I don't know if he does jiu-jitsu, he does more nogi, but, you know, you know, new guys that are reforming the sport and stuff now, I mean, they could call it American jiu-jitsu, you know, <laughs> it's, mm. a, it's, it's changed that much. It's, um, I always get frustrated when people, like I train gi and no gi, and I always get frustrated when um, people act as though the gi, training the gi isn't practical. I always just see it as like training in the gi is training for fighting in winter with someone, you know, with a cloak on and training, training no is training for fighting someone in summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. You need mm. both. <laughs> yeah. Um, which fighters do you find the most exciting to watch today in the UFC or Bellator or one? Justin Gaethje. Um, Chandler, Michael Chandler. 
Chandler's a nutcase. He's so exciting to watch. Chandler, Gaethje, uh, Khabib. I love watching Khabib. Mm. What did you think of that fight between um, Gaethje and Chandler? That was a crazy war, man. That was nuts. That was crazy. I, I didn't. I thought. I thought. I didn't think uh, Chandler was going to do as well as he did. I thought Gaethje was going to overpower him, and Same. you know, Gaethje has stamina like a monster. So I thought Gaethje was going to. Um, you know, Chandler was going to be real tough in the beginning. I thought Gaethje was going to just start walking over him. But, man, that was like neck to neck to the very end. Mm. Who are you um, picking out of Masvidal and Covington, if you have to give a prediction? Masvidal, Covington. Um, um, what I, I would like to see Masvidal win. Just because he because more, the, he embodies just because more what, of what the whole like. backstory, you know, he took in Kobe and Kobe kind of turned his back on him. And Kobe's kind of a big mouth. But with that said, I think Kobe's wrestling and his his pressure. I think he has the the tools to that's gonna beat Massimo. He's a he's an amazing fighter, Covington. Yeah. Oh just, yeah, Covington's one of the best, man. The fact that Usman is, you know, being the pound for pound best now for probably what like two years, and to see how close he came in the first fight, and even just how well he did in the um, second fight, not only going the distance, but there were four or five exchanges where he started putting it on Usman, and yeah, it's people people get blinded by the um, clownish behaviour and don't really see how good he is sometimes. I think. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I if I had to put money down, I, I would probably put money on. Kobe, but you want Masvidal. It's kind of like the Askren. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. So it's, maybe I'll bet on Kobe and then have be in a win-win situation. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the um, Askren Masvidal situation all over again. Everyone's assuming the um, the wrestler is going to win and the person who everyone hates is going to win. But we'll see. That flying knee. What did you think of that flying knee against Askren? Unbelievable. <laughs> it's the most savage thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it is. It was brutal, man. Mm. Uh, Armbar is your favorite submission? Yes. Mm. Why? It's because I'm good at it. There's something that just feels good about them. I don't like It's my favorite. Again, sounds a bit rich coming from a blue belt, but they're my, it's my favorite submission as well, especially like far side armbars when you hit them just because it's, I don't know, aesthetically it just looks so – it looks – they just do this whole twist on someone's body and then you've got their arm on the other side. But there's something that just feels so much more satisfying about it than taking someone's back or, yeah. Yeah, armbars are fun. I just like it. I just really enjoy it. I'm good at it. Mm. Um, I know that you've done a lot of work for the people of northern Japan who um, were suffering and are suffering as a result of the Fukushima nuclear disaster from back in 2011 just for the listeners would you be able to explain um what happened there um because i think the as horrific and significant as the event was i think it's sort of um been somewhat forgotten um over the last 10 years um what's the situation like now and what kind of work have you been doing to help people in that area it's uh right now it's uh, the radiation is still very high uh, Japan has uh, stopped all temporary housing that they used to fund. The government used to fund. Uh, they put them all back. They put a lot of people back into the radiation zone. So it's a it's a very bad situation. The radiation is the water is still leaking. 
it's you know it's a it's a worldwide problem it's going to be a world problem i don't know why people the whole world isn't trying to help with that you know so they're 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 running out of places to store the radioactive water that's leaking and you know as far as my missions i'm i've lost touch with a lot of people that i used to take care of because when they sparse out the took the people out of the temporary housing they sparse them all over back to their homes i can't find them I'm still in touch with an orphanage in Fukushima. So I've been taking care of that orphanage with uh, giving shoes for the kids every year. And do they just, um, I mean, was, was Fukushima, because everyone always remembers Chernobyl, but was Chernobyl, is that because Chernobyl was a more significant nuclear disaster or was, is Fukushima on the same level? I think Fukushima is on the same level and, and potentially going to be worse because it's still not contained. It's still not over. It's so weird, though, that... I mean, there just seem to be so many problems in the world that, I don't know, we just kind of keep shoving under the um, shoving under the rug. Um, even, like, with this situation with Ukraine at the moment, it's kind of like the world's only just realised, oh, yeah, we have nuclear weapons. It's like, why haven't we spent the last... I just don't get why we haven't spent more time, you know, on denuclearization and solving this problem before it happened. Um, have many um, do have many are the, are the kids in the orphanage are they suffering um, from uh, the radiation or are they um, suffering mainly just from the displacement um, and the poverty that comes with that? No, I think uh, the kids are. Um I don't know. I don't. I only spend time with them every so often, so it's hard to tell if they're really suffering. They seem to be okay. Um, can't be hundred percent okay because they don't have parents. But uh, it's a displacement that they had. The radiation is in the the school where they are, where they're living. There's radiation. It's not super high, but it's not zero. There is radiation they're living in. You know, if there's going to be any problems, the radiation, I think it's something that's going to be coming up in the future. You know, eight, 10 years from now, we'll see if there's, there was actually an effect to the kids in the radiation. What's the um, f- first sign you look for health wise when someone's suffering from radiation? Is it certain forms of cancer or? What? Yeah, that's what I think. You know, I'm not sure, but they say cancer, yeah, changes your blood chemistry if you get too much radiation. So, I mean, that's something that probably doesn't happen in one or two years, yeah. Mm. That's probably partly why it's a problem that people are capable of sweeping under the rug because it's so sort of intangible, you know. Yes, yes. And it's something that, you know, doesn't come right away. It's not an instant, you know, it's not instant pain. It's not instant health, health disaster. It's something that happens in such a gradual process. People, you know, just overlook it. I think in um, in many ways your attitude to fighting is similar to the kind of charitable work you do. I mean, I remember listening to you speak about going into the exclusion zone um, several times and much like your attitude to fighting, it seems like um, an uncompromising approach to doing the honourable thing. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, I did... Uh... Yeah, I knew there was radiation when I went into the zone. But, you know, like I say, um, 
physically, I don't think, you know, something that spiritually would damage me, I wouldn't sacrifice that to extend my physical life because I believe the spiritual life is a lot longer. The spiritual life lasts for eternity. The physical life lasts for a mere, you know, 70 to 90 years, which is uh, nothing compared to the spiritual life. So why would I damage my spiritual life to extend the short physical life? And breaking my, breaking my honor, doing something cowardly, running away from something because I'm scared, even though I know it's the right thing. You know, going into the zone, I, I, I went in to try and help the people. And I felt that if, I, you know, I felt that I was someone that with my name, with my fame, I could actually get into the exclusion zones. And I felt that I was someone that actually could make a difference. And if I didn't try, I would feel really shitty about myself. I'd feel like, you know, I'd lose respect for myself. And spiritually, that's not good. Better to choose how you die than when you die then. Yeah. I mean, if I have to, if I'm going to extend my physical life and, and damage my spiritual life, I'd, I'd rather not. You know, I always, I always say, like, a, think of a scenario where there's a big uh, house on fire and there's a, there's, a, there's a child in the second floor. The building's not all crumbling, but to a point where it's borderline dangerous so the firemen won't run in anymore. And for me, intellectually looking at the situation, thinking, hey, maybe I could actually save the kid. To actually think that I have a chance and not do it would be spiritually damaging to me. And I believe that I, I would want to go in and take that chance and go in and see if I can save the kid. Hmm, and I'd rather die in the burning building than um, damage myself spiritually. Hmm. The regret you'd live with would be unbearable and it would just be about making that calculation you know straight away and realizing that that's the right thing to do um, yes and then see the building collapse and wonder if if i did try would i have been able to save her that would eat me alive it's what i find so interesting about um combat sport is um and partly why i think it's fascinating for lots of people is it's something that I'm never like a MMA fight on, you know, a professional level is never going to be something that I think I'm brave enough to do. Um, and so you never have that, um, you never have that test on that level to know what you would do in a certain situation. The kind of work you've done is taking that to another level. Um, but I think that's, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to know how I would act in certain situations and because um up to this point i haven't it's um yeah it intrigues me have you seen you have that you have the little curiosity as a man yeah yeah i think that's pro- probably why i even started doing jujitsu in the first place was i was i mean it's jujitsu's um especially tr- especially training it over over competing because i've i've only competed once before but um it's sort of like a little microcosm of death you know it's um you sort of see how you'd react to um, being choked out, being overwhelmed, being physically exhausted, and you sort of get a brief glimpse into your personality. I feel like you know someone, um, you know someone a lot better once you've rolled with them. Yeah, yeah. You, you, the, the cool thing about jiu-jitsu is you can pretty much go 
like like boxing or any type of other part of the martial, mixed martial arts, you can't really go 100%. Mm. But the, the jiu-jitsu, you can always go. Every time you spar, you can go 100%. So really, it's a real good learning process. And, you know, like you said, the the situations where you're in, you're, you're in the position, you can't move. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to react to it? Mm. Did you see um, Lomachenko, Usyk, and uh, Klitschko? The Klitschko brothers are all in Ukraine at the moment. What do you think about that? And I hear Igor Lomachenko too. Is he? It's just kind of, um, I don't know. if I mean, I've got no idea really what the situation's like on the ground there, obviously. But, I mean, if those guys get killed, which they probably will, by the sounds of things, I mean, that's just... I mean, Lomachenko's been my favourite boxer for like the last five or six years. Um, be a bit of a tragedy. It would be. And, you know, you see, you see I hear what they're doing, yeah, but they're banning all the Russian athletes from the Olympics. And... Mm. It's just about sort of saying... I mean, I just wonder if Putin's the kind of guy who would rather watch the world burn or... Would be, you know, would rather watch the world burn or himself lose, and it's just sort of praying he's not that kind of a psychopath. I know, man. It's just so unpredictable. Yeah, what what's going to actually happen there? Is he going to just? I'm, I'm, I mean, I wonder if he just has such a huge ego that he started something he's not going to want to pull out of it. Mm. I'm afraid that that's how he is. And I mean, we might be we might be looking at the beginning of the next world war, and it's the beginning and the end you know within just because it's such uncharted territory i mean who knows how this kind of stuff plays out i mean if a, yes they start using nuclear yeah apparently it takes 10 minutes for a nuke to reach the united states from russia wow so it's like if this if this happens does it mean you know everything's over within half an hour and then it's just picking up the pieces for whoever's left um things have been very because i'm in london um things have been very uh, tense here. Um, You're a lot closer to it than we are, yeah. Mm. But I guess it's sort of, I mean, yes, I am closer, but again, to that, you know, it only taking 10 minutes for a missile to reach the United States. It's just, it, it just globalizes this issue so much more. And um, Hawaii would probably want to be one of the targets for sure. It's because there's a lot of military bases in Hawaii. Isn't yep. There? Hawaii would definitely be a target. And, um, you know, I was really worried when this began. I was thinking, because I know Xi Jinping had met with Putin three weeks ago and they'd signed an agreement, and I was really worried that this was like a coordinated plan. Like I thought Xi Jinping's going to invade Taiwan at the same time that Putin invades Ukraine, and it would open a front on, on you know, it would open up two fronts, but China seems seems to be pulling back at the moment, which is a bit of a miracle, I think. Um, but yeah. Grim times. <laughs> um, another example, I think, of your intent to live honourably um, without compromise is reflected in some of the interactions you've had with the Yakuza, um, which I've heard about through interviews you've previously given. Just for the listeners, would you be able to speak about some of these interactions? Yeah, um, I have a lot of uh, Yakuza friends, higher, lower up. Lower guys, higher guys, <clears throat> and um, you know I've beaten up a, couple, a bunch of them because they broke their word or they backstabbed me. 
So the interesting about the Yakuza is they uh, the higher up guys are very honorable. So the reason why I really didn't get into much trouble or I didn't get killed is because I never did pick on anyone. I never did start problems. I If I ever laid a hand on anyone, it was for the right reasons. And, you know, the, the, the two guys, the three Yakuza that I did beat up, the higher ups did come and confront me and when they heard my my reasoning, they they all backed off. So you know they do have they do run the higher up guys do run by a lot of honor. You know they're not all bad guys. You know I mean there's good bad yakuza and bad yakuza, but they're all it, over Japan. Is it incorrect of me though to assume that any member of the yakuza is morally compromised on some level? I mean, um, surely, I mean I wouldn't pretend to know you know, what they do or what they're involved with. But um, isn't it quite difficult to lead an ethical life and be involved in that kind of work or no? Um, it depends. Yeah. If you're, if you're in the nightlife and you're out, you'll be, you'll be mingling with Yakuza. So it's not that hard to actually be a part of that whole scene, business-wise, friends-wise. Mm. But if you're a normal businessman person like that, you don't, associate with them a lot it, it'd be really hard to get even get involved with them mm. i'd also heard a story about a guy who had um and maybe it's what you were mentioning before who had backstabbed you and um you'd confront confronted um him about it in a park outside a nightclub uh what happened in that situation yeah he uh he was supposed to uh take care of the kid and keep him in line. And Yamamoto kid was getting a little too arrogant for his, uh, you know, his, he was getting really arrogant. And he was a famous I father, felt that by he the had way, to keep, just for the Yeah, listeners. he got really, yeah, Yamamoto kid got really famous and he started getting too big for his britches. And so I contacted that Yakuza guy telling him that he needs to um, take control of that. Because he never, and then he never did. So I started, uh, wanting to contact him to ask him why he didn't take care of it. And he started avoiding my calls and running away from my calls. <clears throat> so that was something that really pissed me off that he did. And after one of the fights that they had, I, I went to the after party. I had some of my students go to the party and pull this guy out into the park. And pretty much, ah, you know, I beat him up, but it wasn't like I, I mixed martial arts beats up a Yakuza. It was more just a punishment. You know, I was, I was, I leg kicked him. I, you know, I, I was talking to him, you know, as I talked to him, I was backhanding him in the face, you know, I dropped him about two or three times, but I stood him back up. He was all bloody and stuff. And well, as I was doing that, you know, the grapevine in the underworld is really fast. And the, the higher up guys heard what was happening. And they came to the park. And when they came to the park, uh, they faced, you know, my guys came and stopped them. They faced off. And I, I kind of told them to let them through. And when they came through, I told them that, you know, they're, you know, I say one thing, you know, that they understand, they, they knew what was happening with me and uh, the guy, the guy's name was AG, but they knew what was happening with me and AG. And um, I told them, you know, hey, he fucked me over. He didn't listen. He started running from me. 
And they said, yeah, but you can't. He was standing there all bloody. And he said, but you can't, you can't beat him up like that. And I said, well, let's put it this way. If someone backstabbed you and you did only 30% of what you wanted to do, what do you think that's being nice? And they looked at, they looked at me and said, yeah, but look at his face. I said, I've been hitting him for like 20 minutes. I said, he's still standing. And the guy looked at me and I said, I told him 30%, man. And the guy looked at me and kind of just like, whoa, mm -hmm. you're right. And he stopped and he understood that. So, mm -hmm. and me, me and the guy is, is the Yakuza, the high up Yakuza guys, really good friends today. Mm. That's pretty intense. <laughs> but I imagine you lived a pretty intense lifestyle or still do. I lived a life like a movie, man. They should mm. make a movie of my life. Mm. I've always thought the best way to live a life is, you know, not to make as much money as possible, but to live a life worthy of having a biography written about you, which I think you certainly have. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't make a lot of money, so. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, well, um, I think we can wrap it up there. Ensign, and um, thanks so much for your time. As I say, I've um, been an admirer of yours and your career and the way you fight, um, the kind of charitable work you do. Um, and, yeah, it seems like a, a dying art to live, um, to carry yourself in such a way. So thanks again and, um, yeah, hopefully we, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Thank you and uh, good luck on your jiu-jitsu journey. Have fun, man. Thank you. It's a It'll be uh, a long time before I get that black belt, but uh, I'll keep... Um, Go for it. Keep going. Keep going. You know how you get the black belt in Jesus? You know how to get... Good. What's the biggest trick to that? Just keep turning up. Just keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know it. You know it. Good job. <laughs> uh, awesome. Thanks so much, Ensign. And um, yeah, all the best. Right on, brother.